Hello and welcome to this week's edition of The Edge, the official podcast of Bassett Television, brought to you by our great friends at Ditchwitch. Outdoors Dan here, and hey, did you know Bassett's Television is currently on Wild TV in Canada? It is, and also on the Versus Network now through June of 2008. We've got a great podcast for you. Aaron Martin is alongside. Aaron, how you doing, pal? I'm doing great, Dan. We're going to be checking in with somebody from the, is it Roy? It's not Roy Rogers, is it? No, no, you know, Roy and Trigger, they've since retired, and they're doing a show down in Branson. Actually, it's Roy <laughs> Hawk now, <laughs> the okay. Western anchor. Well, I saw Western and Roy. I was kind of hoping, <laughs> I mean, that's going way back. That is going way back. Yeah. That's, that's a little longer than I want to really talk about. <laughs> but, no, I'm, I'm really anxious to hear Roy Hawk. I've heard nothing but good things about him. And, you know, fishing out in the West is becoming huge, and more and more people are picking up riding reels, which I'm really glad to see because there's been a decline in the last few years of, uh, through attrition, people not getting back into fishing, but out in the West, it's exploding. Well, and I think Roy's going to bring some light. Uh, one of the things that he is going to do is uh, shed some light on the stereotype that you have to have a, a, a spinning rod and uh, use finesse tactics out there. So it, it'll be a good interview. And then, of course, we have Dr. J that's going to be joining us a little bit later. All right, you ready? I'm ready. All right, folks, it's all right here for you on the edge. You're listening to The Edge, the official audio program of Bass Edge. Brought to you in part by Ditch Witches On. Experience the revolution. Oh, look here. I got one. I got one. Look here. <laughs> I mean, he whacked that football jig. The blades will dictate a lot of times the speed of the retrieve or the depth of that bait. Oh, good fish. Good fish. Did you see him come off that log? Woo, look at that son of a gun, man. That's awesome. You know, you've got to just stay active. Fishing is not easy. Oh, man, that's a toad. This is unbelievable. Man, I am so glad turkey season's done for me. I'm done filming, and now I just get to do all the fun parts, doing the openings and the cutaways and stuff. But you know what? It's starting to heat up, and a lot of people are starting to head out and fish. Yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, we've been talking the last few weeks, and I'm sure this is going to be an ongoing topic uh, throughout the course of this year, but the high water conditions. But bottom line, you know, I did some traveling this past week, dropped down into Texas, came back up through Arkansas. There's high water everywhere, but the good news is every person that I've talked with, uh, they're able to go out and figure out how to catch these bass. So don't let this high water you know, keep you from get, getting out and experiencing some of the great fishing that's going on around the country right now. Yeah, I mean, they're still going to be, fit, you know, biting and chasing bait fish. It just might be around your hibachi, that's all. That's the, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Just around the hibachi. I'm hey, glad. fish got to swim, fish got to eat. That's right. That's uh, but, you know, Dan, I mean, that brings up one of the things, you know, when you get to times of year, and, and again, just a reoccurring theme is those seasonal conditions that we often talk about, uh, regardless of what the weather's doing, what's going on mentally. Uh, bottom line, like you said, the fish still have to eat, and right now, you know, we have that ability to where there's a lot of post-spawn that's going on uh, down in the southern parts. Uh, there's still where you can get more or less that trifecta to where you still have all three stages uh, that's taking place, being the pre-spawn, uh, the spawn, and then also some oncoming post-spawn, maybe throughout the Midwest into the north. But bottom line, you know, we're getting ready to move into that typical post-spawn pattern. Yeah, you want to slow down your presentation a little bit, just take it easy. And, you know, the fish are still going to be feeding and. Uh, I know that you're really partial to Texas rig plastics with lightweights right now. Yeah, you, you know, I mean, the, the fish just, when, when they come off the spawn, they're just not feeling well. And mm-hmm. there is a little bit of that recovery time uh, right before, you know, they, they spread out and go back to some of their summer haunts, I guess, if you will. 
but I always just break it down into moving right back out to those pre-staging areas uh, right before, uh, more or less, I guess you would classify it as a pre-spawn area, move right back out to those, and those same areas that produced for you during the spawn or right before the spawn are going to be hot spots right after the spawn. The only thing that you need to do, like you brought up, is, is just slow your presentation down, because chances are, uh, if you're not catching them, it doesn't mean the fish aren't there. It just means that maybe you need to slow down or change, uh, drop down to a smaller size bait. That, I think, is something that's often overlooked. Yeah, you betcha. You're going to be busy here in the next couple of weeks. You're going to be at the Legend Tournament down at Lake Fork? Yes, yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, that is, is going on. Um, then also, we're heading uh, from there. We head out on the, the 24th. Mr. Wheaties. Yeah, yeah, there you go, Denny Brower. Yeah, you know uh, what I'm talking about. There, I, I do know what you're yeah. talking about. He was on the Wheaties box. He was on the Wheaties yeah. box. And yeah. then uh, then from there, we're going straight to uh, kind well, of jamming out. Sean. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, Sean. Uh, we'll be with Sean uh, filming a, a show with uh, with Sean down on Rayburn. Yeah, Turnkey. Yep. So it's going to be a lot of fun. And then, of course, and then we're going to be at the Bama Jam? Yeah, the Bama Jam. Man, I wish you were going to be down there. Yeah, well, you know, my fiance Miranda Lambert's going to be there, so one of us is going to be there. <laughs> your fiance, that's right, yeah. Miranda Lambert, and then yeah. of course, uh, you know, your your good uh, hunting buddy Trace Atkins, and then uh, then Hank Williams, and well, you know, Hank Jr. loves to hunt. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to meet Hank. I haven't, I've never met him. So, I, I and not. Miranda's really not my fiance. She can do way better than yeah. I. But there's only hope. There's going to be like 37 bands down there, so we'll get yeah. we'll have the opportunity to hang out, talk fishing, I'm sure. But oh, uh, that'll be great. Enjoy a lot of great music. All right, well, speaking of moving on, we need to move on with this podcast. Up next is FLW Pro Roy Hawk, and we're going to throw it to him. We'll be back with you after Roy's interview right here on The Edge. Give any type of boat the edge with MegaWare Keel Guard. It's simple to install, and we can now beach our boat anywhere. If you own a boat, you need one of these. MegaWare Keel Guard protects the keel of your boat from sand abrasion, from underwater obstructions, even concrete boat ramps. Kit started under $140. And best yet, it's guaranteed to keep on protecting for life. Thanks, MegaWare KeelGuard. Thanks, MegaWare KeelGuard. Welcome back to The Edge. Brought to you in part by Ditch Witches Zon. Establishing a new standard in trencher power and versatility. Joining us for this week's Angler Spotlight is Western Tour Pro Roy Hawk. Roy, thanks so much uh, for being part of the Edge. Hey, thanks for having me. Nice to take a little break in between tournaments and actually get to do something a little different. So, yeah. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I know you have quite the resume uh, by fishing on the FLW Western Series, the Strin Series, the WON, and then also Bass West. So uh, I know your schedule is extremely busy, but we're just actually tickled that uh, you took time out of your schedule to really fill us in on, on a lot of the things that... Uh, that are happening out west. And, you know, to start with, Roy, I know that you grew up, or actually was born, I think, in, in southern Illinois. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Carbondale, Illinois. You know, so, which really isn't too far from uh, from where I grew up, but, you know, later you moved out west, and I know you had the, you've had the opportunity to travel, obviously, all over the United States uh, fishing for bass. And, you know, perhaps you could shed some light on, is there really that much of a difference when targeting fish uh, on some of the lakes that you fish, such as uh, Havasu, Clear Lake, you know, the Delta, Mead, uh, as compared to maybe some of the Midwestern or Southern reservoirs? There's two things there. One of them is a bass is a bass throughout the world, and a lot of the same techniques will work throughout the country and throughout the world, really. 
Um, and it's just finding those niches um, in each uh, body of water, you know, where certain things apply. And, uh, I mean, there's there's things in the West that you would never do in the East. I mean, you know, fishing 120 feet of water, drop shotting, catching spotted bass that deep, you know. That's a really, really rare opportunity, you know, back east. But there's other things that across the board work throughout. Um, you know, we catch fish on frogs in the west. We catch them on frogs in the east. We catch them on crankbaits throughout the country. You know, things like that that are just universal. Um, and that's that's one of my key things that I do is I try and utilize those universal tools um, that can apply anywhere in the country. Um, things like crankbaits, jerkbaits, topwater, frogs, flipping, you know, that, that type of thing. Something that um, I feel comfortable doing and I can apply any, any body of water. So then perhaps the stereotype, I guess, for lack of a better word, that, uh-huh. you know, you have to have a, a spinning rod and, and six-pound test line isn't always the case. No, definitely not. There, there are key times where if you don't have a spinning rod in your hand, you, you know, you're going to get beat. But most of the time, you can you can uh, you know apply just general bass fishing techniques even out west. You know sometimes we may be you know if we're fishing crankbait, you know maybe we're fishing a little bit deeper than uh, you typically would back east, or you know uh, a jig maybe fished a little bit deeper that type of thing. But that's not always the case either. I mean we got some great shallow water fisheries, um, places like Clear Lake in the Delta and even Havasu where you know you're you're not fishing deeper than, uh, you know, 10 feet of water a lot of times. So it, they're set up just like an eastern eastern lake in general. I know back east, you know, places like where you're from, Table Rock, um, you know, you got some pretty good clear water fishery. And, uh, you know, you, you do fish some depths. I mean, drop shining is a great technique there. But, um, but so, the, I mean, there's universal uh, applications throughout the country. You know, western techniques, uh, so to speak, you know, uh, like drop shotting and whatnot. Uh, work back east and and uh, you know flipping works out west. So. Well, I know obviously you're a very versatile angler and and certainly are willing to do whatever it takes or whatever is required to to put fish in the boat. But you know you tend to lean a little bit more on the side of of power fishing. Yes, correct. You yes, know, so I we, do a lot of a lot of cranking, a lot of jerk baits, uh, a lot of rattle traps. I would say ninety ninety percent of the money I win in the West is all on reaction baits. So how does that, 90%. you know, compare with, uh, compare and contrast perhaps? I mean, is it the exact same? Are you taking the same approach as what you would with lakes in the East and the Midwest? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, to a T. Other than when we get to areas like maybe, uh, you know, Lake Shasta where it's clear and deep and things like that, you got to find little niches where where you can apply that that technique. Um, even Lake Havasu, it's got a lot of good shallow water, but a lot of guys are, uh, you know, they throw worms and jigs and things like that, and, and they're going to catch numbers of fish. And I try and find small niches in those environments that, uh, you know, I can still throw reaction bait or power fish, so to speak, and, um, you know, end up on in the upper, uh, you know, percentage in the tournament. So whenever you are preparing, let's say, whether it be for a tournament or recreational fishing, are you doing map study to identify these areas to find these niches or, um, you know, perhaps walk us through that process? Yeah, I mean, map map work's a big deal to me. I, I definitely, I can sit and stare at a map for hours and just try and visualize what, you know, what I'm going to see when I get there. 
Um, the internet's a great resource to you know to find out different information, um, and then talking to uh, you know a local tackle store that type of thing you know to find out water quality and, and things like that and typical weights to win a tournament and you know just general stuff. I'm I, I'm not a guy that goes out and you know calls a tackle store and wants to know the favorite number one you know log to go throw a crankbait on or something, but. Um, it's just not my thing. I, I want general information, how much grass is in the lake, what type of grass, um, clarity, things like that. And, you know, like places out here where we have a real clear, you know, lake that's real clear, I'll go find little areas that have dirty water, or I'll check the weather and watch the weather and, and look for wind conditions and go and fish some of the windier areas where I can apply, a, you know, cranking or jerk baits or, you know, something like that, where I can find a little off-color water it tends to put the fish a little more shallow uh, to where they're more accessible to my technique. So to establish more or less a kind of a baseline on seasonal patterns and, and the con current condition, you know, here we're in the middle to latter part of May. Um, what is taking place in kind of the areas that, you, that you're fishing right now? Is it a spawn? Is it a uh, pre-spawn? Is it post-spawn? We, we have some of each. Right now I'm at uh, Lake Mead right near Las Vegas, Nevada. And we're getting ready to fish the FLW series here. And uh, we've had a big wave of spawners this last month, uh, last full moon. A lot of them spawned. Um, there is still some spawning fish, um, and there may be more coming up on the next moon. Um, but mostly it's post-spawn. Uh, there's a lot of fish on structure right now. The lake is really, really low, so this sets up as kind of a classic western fishery, so to speak, um, where a lot of the cover is gone and uh, a lot of the all the grass, the brush, everything around the shoreline is almost vacant now. There's nothing in the water. And so it's going to be a real challenge to keep applying those power techniques in this environment. Um, but uh, throughout practice, I've, I've found some good areas that I think I can make it work. So, so specifically, you know, for instance, what uh, what are you going to be, to be targeting? I've found some dirty water areas throughout the lake. I've got, they're actually about 60 miles apart. Wow. So... Yeah, but this is a four-day tournament, so I'll have the opportunity to work both of them throughout those four days. And we got better. There's actually shallow bait in those areas, which is going to be really key for me, um, where most of, the, most of the other parts of the lake, the bait's deeper. It's 40, 50 feet deep right now, and the water's really, really clear. I feel really, really good about fishing a variety of different crankbaits. I've got some shallow, real shallow stuff, and I've got some mid-depth stuff, meaning like uh, 7 to 15 feet. That type of deal, and then a uh, football head jig that I can fish on structure, um, just outside those areas. When but you're talking about structure, are you referring to rock piles and formations? Rock. Yep, it's all rock. Yep. There's very little grass right now. We have a in Lake Mead. There's a when the lake's down, we have this sticky grass that grows in clumps, and it's really kind of thorny feeling. Um, we call it underwater tumbleweed, and that's what it looks like. It looks just like a little pillow of grass. And even that right now is is almost non-existent. I mean, there's a little bit, but I mean, you're talking about one little garbage can size piece here and there, and it's really hard to target fish doing something like that. Um, but usually, we can find these blooms of that stuff and be able to target them, even in clear water, uh, real shallow. But that's non-existent right now. So colors that you're, you know, that you would use uh, this time of year in the West, um, any difference there? Um, not really. I mean, uh, more natural colors, uh, you know, in the clearer water and more, uh, you know, solids and highlighted colors in, in off-color water. 
um, basically, you know, the same type of deal you find anywhere in the world, you know. I mean, it, uh, to me, that's not a, color's a secondary thing. I mean, you need to find the fish and, and get an idea of what they're eating and then, you know, something that's similar to that. Um, you know, if they're eating shad, you know, something white and then decreasing from white to clearer um, as you increase the clarity of the water. So what about as far as, you know, you hear a lot of uh, discussion concerning the pressure. Um, how how much of your thought process is paid to to that? Do you have to adjust your uh, fishing day accordingly uh, based upon what other anglers are doing? Yes, absolutely. I fish people a lot. I fish anglers a lot. And I fish uh, out of pressure zones a lot. Um, I'll go to an area far, far away and fish for, you know, six bites all day, whereas guys are catching 20 or 30 fish a day. Um, and I feel that gives me an advantage to, to get up on top. I'll fish for six quality bites versus, you know, 30 fish all day. I am very, very in tune to where the pressure zones are, and I almost always try and stay away from them if I can. Um, I don't have any problem getting right in there and playing bumper boats, too, but I always try and find those those tucked-away areas that I may not get as many bites, but I'm going to get better quality fish. Well, I would think certainly that, you know, throughout the course of, especially in this instance, you know, four-day tournament, and then by the time you factor in uh, all the practice of the time that those anglers and competitors have been there uh, trying to find those fish, you know, by the time that the tournament rolls around, those fish have seen a lot of bait. They have, for sure. And, and... Places like Lake Mead, where I'm at right now, I mean, we got, like you say, a four-day tournament, and, you know, the bass per mile in this lake isn't that great. I mean, it's pretty dismal in some areas, so you've got to be able to, you know, like you were saying earlier, be versatile. Um, you know, I may be able to go to some of these uh, off-color water areas, you know, hit some good fish, and then if things aren't working out, I need to come back out to some of the clear water, get out my worm, catch a couple keepers, fill in my limit, run away in, that type of thing. So, and as the tournament progresses, I may be doing more and more of that clear water fishing, but um, hopefully not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, when you talk about fishing for quality bites, is there just that those those fish, you're fishing for, for individual fish, and those better fish are just holding in certain areas, or are there actually high concentrations uh, in the areas that you're targeting? There's high concentrations of bait. That's the, that's the biggest thing. There is probably, you know, more bass per mile so to speak, in those areas, but not not really. I mean, we got about the same population of bass throughout the area, but you have more bait. And you try and find those prime opportunities where the fish are actually feeding right then, and that's that's where you're going to have success. Um, whereas in the other parts of the lake, you got fish that are just kind of set up and roaming around on, on rock structures and that type of thing. And you can catch those fish, and, and throughout the day, you know, that bite kind of stays the same. Um Whereas in this off-color water area, I'm trying to find fish that are actively feeding. It's going to be a short window, try and get those fish while they're going, and then move out. So are you more or less using the, the style and the size of the bait to control the size of the, of the bites that you're getting? Yes, yeah, so to speak, and, and just using the off-color water, and hopefully we can get a little wind. You know, anything that kind of uh, displaces the water, anything that creates energy, basically, to where I can fool some of those bigger fish. Um, you know, there's there's three and four pounders throughout the lake, and you got an opportunity to catch one anywhere. But I feel like I can actually dial in and figure out where one of those is going to bite in that off-color water when they're actually feeding. I have a prime opportunity right then to to get one, 
you know, to fool and to trick one and to bite my bait. So in, in closing, basically, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're trying to kind of match the, the feeding habits or, I guess, the conditions during that time yes. of making sure that you're there at the time of which they feed. Right, exactly. These fish feed and they'll move up and feed right when everything's prime. Is that something then that you take the information from what you gained during your practice and, and try and be there during that, that same time throughout the tournament day? Yeah, and not so much just, uh, you know, a little bit as far as, like, actual clock time, but more conditional through the day as far as, like, wind, that type of thing. If we get some wind that comes up, there's some areas that where that wind's going to blow onto, it's got bait, and, the, and some fish are going to move up and feed at that time. And that's going to be really, really key. The other thing is fish will position, whether or not they're feeding or not, and they'll position, you know, depending on sunlight, on these rocky areas where you've got some shadows and things like that. And that way I can dial in on certain key casts that will be more productive. It's kind of weird just because we don't have any, any cover in this lake right now. Usually this time of year we can set up in some of the bushes and grass areas and we can catch them on top water and they're really ambush-oriented. But right now we just don't have any cover. There is a little bit of rock and, and things like that, and we're utilizing those those edges, but you really got to get them. You got to get them when they're feeding. You got to have conditions that produce that feeding, and they move in and get them. So really, you'll you'll make an adjustment uh, basically as as the day unfolds. It's not that you have anything set in stone, but if the wind changes, oh, no. you're going to up and move. Absolutely, and that's the biggest thing, especially on Lake Mead, is you got to be ready to move and adjust any time throughout the day, and you have to really, really fish by feel. These guys that come from areas where there's a lot of bass per mile, um, even here in the west, like Clear Lake, Shasta, Delta, things like that, they'll pre-fish an area and they'll get four or five bites and stick a few of them. They're, they look good. And they figure they got a nice stretch of bank. They come here and apply that to Lake Mead to where they go down a bank and they get a couple of bites and they hook a couple. They could go back there the next four days and never get bit. Wow. You really, really have to fish by feel here. Um, you got to open your mind and just let go of all your preconceived notions and, uh, you know, fish conditionally and, and take advantage of anything. Roy, uh, thank you so much uh, for taking time to be part of the edge and, and look forward to having you back again soon. Any closing thoughts or comments? I just want to thank you for having me and, and giving me the opportunity and uh, look forward to doing, uh, you know, future things. I'd love to be a part of your show. I think we can make a fun time out of it and um, hopefully, uh, you know, help people throughout the United States. Well, uh, we certainly look forward to that as well. And certainly if you have any questions or comments for uh, Roy, uh, by all means, go to BassEdge.com under the Ask the Pro section, and I'm sure Roy would uh, answer any questions that you might have. Look forward to seeing you all there. Thank you. We just heard from FLW Pro Roy Hawk, and he is my kind of guy. Spinnerbaits, crankbaits, and flipping. Not a very boring presentation. No, and, and I think that's what, you know, every angler aspires to be able to do at some point in time throughout their fishing day or fishing trip. Uh, but, you know, certainly out west, I, I think there's almost the opinion that, um, you know, maybe perhaps you have to have a spinning rod and using those finesse tactics, a small worm, doing the drop shot, you know, some of those western tactics. But I thought Roy did a great job of breaking it down of how he is able to, uh, I, I guess, utilize the normal power fishing techniques, such as the spinnerbaits, crankbaits, jigs, those type of things, by looking for just dirtier water, maybe some wind action. 
some of those areas that he can still apply his fishing strengths. Because obviously, you know, he was born uh, right there in southern Illinois and was later moved out uh, into Utah, and he was able to take some of those things that are applied uh, there in the, the east and the deep south and use those tactics to his benefit to win a lot of money out there on those western tours. Yeah, there's some big fish out there. Don't let that Florida stream bass get you all excited. There's some big fish in Oh, California. my gosh. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You, you look at the places like the Delta and Shasta and, you know, Lake Mead. I mean, they're, not only are there numbers, but there's, like you said, some really, really quality bass. Yeah, I thought he, uh, Roy did a great job, and I'm anxious to hear more from him. And really love the way he, you can tell he's really fond of the spinnerbaits and the crankbaits. And, you know what, I, I, I don't know what I would do if I couldn't get out on a body of water and at least throw my uh, crawdad rattle trap a couple times. Because, to me, that is my favorite bait of all time. Well, I think that goes back to what he was mentioning concerning the versatility. You know, you have to, as an angler today, you know, with the, the learning curve as it is, I mean, just look at the, the Collegiate Bass Anglers Association, what they're doing for the upcoming or the next generation of anglers that are out there. You know, and that's why he stresses the importance not only of versatility, but then also as an angler, you have to be able to instantly change, meaning that you can't go out on the water, whether it be uh, recreationally or um, prior to the tournament, with any preconceived notions, you know. Mm -hmm. For instance, if you're on Lake Mead and that wind changes direction or all of a sudden goes from no wind to wind or vice versa, you have to instantly drop what you're doing. Think of how that is going to help or hurt your current situation, and can you better yourself by making that decision to pick up and move and make that adjustment? And that's ultimately, that's how he is able to go out and have successful days on the water. Yeah, really, really, really good interview, so thank you, Roy. All right, folks, we need to head over to the Inside Edge. Dr. Jay is up next to talk about the psychology of exceptional fishing. I hope you enjoy that. Aaron and I will see you right here on the Edge here in a couple minutes. You've got the truck. You've got the toys. Now it's time to get the hitch that gives you more time to play with both. It's the tow and stow receiver hitch by B&W. You want options? Select the ball size, adjust the height to level the trailer, or stow it out of the way in just seconds. It's 10,000 tow and pounds worth of durability, convenience, and the latest technology that has made B&W famous. The tow and stow receiver hitch by B&W. Call 1-866-BEST-HITCH. Welcome back to The Edge, the official podcast of Bass Edge. All right, welcome back to The Edge, and joining us for this week's Inside Edge segment is Dr. Fish himself, Jay McNamara. Jay, thanks so much uh, for joining us here on The Edge. It's always fun, Aaron. You know, uh, Jay, the in your book, uh, you cover, obviously, multiple things under the psychology of exceptional fishing, but we just heard from Roy Hawk, who obviously is a national competitor, but also really went into coverage of, of fishing in the West and some of the, the challenges that he has fished with. And I thought he did a great job of, you know, kind of, I guess, clarifying on some of those stereotypes that's out there. But one of the things that I got a lot out of was when he had made the comment of that it is an absolute necessity that when conditions change, you have to basically pick up and, and change with those conditions. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Well, um, that's a clearly important dimension, Aaron, in any kind of fishing, whether you're a tournament angler or just a recreational weekend guy. Knowing what to do and how to do it when uh, conditions change or when the fish change is very important. It's easy to get on fish and start catching them when they're biting, when they don't bite or when they get to the first spot and they're not there or they're not cooperating. Um, a lot of people get stuck and having that uh, versatility as your mindset is uh, very important. You know, and, and, and in his 
perception was that, you know, on the lakes that he fishes, he could always go out and catch, let's say, 20 to 30 fish in his example. Um, but yet, competitively, that is not going to put him where he wants to be or where he needs to be in, in the tournament standings, I guess. So his thought was to more or less find the bait fish, look for the dirtier water, and and really adjust accordingly. So he's really talking about finding the right bites. Well, exactly. It depends on what your goal is, you know. I mean, uh, Roy's one of those guys who has the knowledge of his water and the skill set to be able to catch 20 or 30, 40 uh, fish uh, a trip. Uh, most guys would be happy to catch uh, half that. But when, when that's your focus, uh, that it's not just uh, any uh, set of small fish, but really you're looking for bigger fish, then you have to adjust your tactics accordingly for that. Well, is there a way that you can prepare for that, you know, when those circumstances arise so that it's just kind of second nature? Sure. It's just like anything else. It's like practicing uh, multiple techniques in any sport, whether it's uh, multiple shots in golf or multiple strokes in tennis or multiple moves in a, in a basketball game. If you practice different techniques so that they're right there at your fingertips, you're more likely to use them. So uh, the average angler, uh, as well as the tournament angler, can benefit from going to an area where they're pretty sure there are concentrations of fish and then laying out several different rods and reels or baits, uh, lures that you're going to use in different sizes and different colors, and then practice the very various retrieves. There was a recent article on one of the websites about uh, uh, a tournament angler who talked about all the different colors of jigs that he used and uh, different kinds of retrieves that he practiced and, and experimented with to find out which ones the fish actually wanted. And then there was a topwater bite in the morning, and he had several different topwater baits that he threw, one after the other. Um, sometimes the fish ate one, sometimes the fish ate another. Um, and uh, it's having those lures and techniques in your, on a list or um, out on your deck where you can use them uh, becomes very important. Well, and, and one of the things that I think that you not only cover in the book, but also just through the individual work that you and I have done together, as well as, um, you know, the other anglers that you work with, you really drive home the importance of putting together a practice plan, because once you actually get out on the water, you know, it, it, that really frees up a lot of mental space uh, to just more or less follow that plan. That's exactly right, Aaron. And a practice plan doesn't have to be a five-page document. You can have a a little three-by-five note card that you sit down with yourself and spend two minutes before you get out on the lake while you're sitting in line at the boat ramp, for example, or just sit down at your kitchen table before you leave the house in the morning if pick, your buddy's picking you up, and um, write down a half a dozen different things that you want to keep in mind as you practice during the day. Um, uh, lure size, lure color, retrieve speed, retrieve type, uh, areas of the lake to fish, whatever it, the dimensions are that you want to uh, vary, just write them down and stick that 3x5 note card in your pocket and then refer to it throughout the day. You'll, you'll force yourself to think about more options than you would if you just got into a uh, kind of a monotonous chunk and wind pattern that we're all, uh, we all easily, easily fall into. You know, and in, and in closing, Jay, I uh, recently had the opportunity, to, I spent some time with uh, James Nigamar uh, fishing, and uh, we were fishing out, actually uh, filming an episode for the upcoming season of Bass Edge, and written on the top of his uh, one of his tackle boxes, he had a piece of paper that was taped to it. And it was just various bullet points, but one of the things, they, they were more or less serving as reminders, you know, fish the moment, fish, you know, slow. Uh, little things like that play, pay rather huge dividends 
uh, just to serve as a reminder throughout your fishing day. Absolutely. And, uh, again, it's an easy thing to do. With it. Some people get caught up in this, uh, a big elaborate practice plan or a big elaborate system for how you go through all these different lures. It's not really that. Most anglers, uh, even the professional anglers, as, as you know, don't really do that. It's not some big systematic decision tree. It's more a set of things that will jog your thinking, uh, remind you of things that you hadn't thought of before, um, keep you focused on making needed changes so that that versatility is something that you actually practice rather than just something that you think about. Well, and I, I remember one of the things that uh, Boyd Duckett had told us last year was that he does not uh, place his confidence per se in his equipment or per se his system. And, and I think that's really the point that you're trying to get across is it doesn't matter what the system is or how you go about it. It's just having something that works for you to serve as a kind of a reminder. Exactly. And the more you experiment with things like different ways to remind yourself, like um, James has got something that's taped to his tackle box. Um, a lot of people, like I said, carry a little note card with them. Some people um, will put a, a piece of tape on their wallet with uh, a couple reminders on them. Whatever you decide to do can work for you, but something to help you continually think about all the different possibilities that are out there because there are always more than we are typically inclined to use. Well, Jay, once again, great information, and would like to, uh, you know, obviously thank you for taking time to be part of the Edge, and also remind really our listeners uh, that if you have not had a chance to to check out Jay's book, uh, The Psychology of Exceptional Fishing, make sure you log on to BassEdge.com and get a copy of that because so many of these topics that we discuss here, uh, not only on the Edge but also Bass Edge TV and through the website are uh, obviously elaborated on a lot more. Uh, Jay, any closing thoughts or comments? No, Aaron, I uh, appreciate always talking with you here. The one thing that I would say is, um, again, if people have specific questions that they'd like to ask us that have addressed either directly or uh, via the show, have them also go to bassedge.com and uh, log on there and uh, send us their questions and concerns, and we'll try to respond to those as they come up. Well, very good, Jay. Look forward to uh, next time. Until then, safe travels. Take care, Aaron. When I'm fishing in a tournament, time is critical. I need fast, easy access to my lures. My Cook's go-to tackle system keeps my bait organized, tangle-free, and within easy reach. It installs in minutes under any deck lid, maximizing the storage space in my boat. And its durable construction lasts even through the harshest conditions. Get organized with Cook's tackle system by calling 1-888-390-8780 or online at cooksgoto.com. Welcome back to The Edge. All right, welcome back on The Edge. This is Mr. Outdoors Dan Young, or as they call me in camp, Hungry. <laughs> and Mr. Aaron Martin, along host of the Bass Edge TV show. Dr. J did it again, and folks, for all you people out there that want to uh, get more revelations from Dr. J, don't forget his book is available at BassEdge.com. Yeah, and, I, you know, just his ability to continue to go out here and tie in mental aspects into the fishing, you know, like he had mentioned about Roy, uh, and his ability to change conditions. That's that's really what uh, uh, Jay's message is, and, of course, now, he, you know, he's called Dr. Fish, which I think is an appropriate name. But, again, you know, Jay will be a reoccurring theme on here, and I can never get too much of Dr. Jay. Yeah, he did a good job. Hey, we got a prize winner. Jim uh, from Newcastle, Oklahoma. And uh, he wins a Cooks to Go tackle management system. How about that? How about a Cooks Go to tackle management system? Or it could be to go since we're shipping it to him. Well, I think it should be go. I mean, he's not <laughs> picking it up. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so, 
No, <laughs> one of the hottest tackle management systems out there, no question. You know, I have them all under all of my lids, and I know Jim is going to enjoy that as much as what we do. Yeah, and then we've got a wonderful uh, listener question, and this is coming from Rob, stationed at K-16 Air Base. First off, Rob, thanks for your service. And Aaron, you want to handle this? Yeah, do you want to state the question? Uh, this is a long answer, but I definitely thought it was worthy of uh, getting it on. Of course, they're all worthy of getting on the podcast. Yeah, just basically said he recently had an opportunity to fish and uh, look at a crystal clear, or a lake that was crystal clear. In fact, it was so clear, he could see the males build, building their nests and guarding their spawning beds in shallow water. However, he, what struck him as odd that he didn't see any actual females on the beds anywhere near for that matter. So he was wondering, will a male build a bed without having first chosen a mate? Is it the case of build it and they will come? I like that. Mm-hmm. Or do they choose a mate first and then build the beds? Or do they need to choose a mate before building where the females are? I think that's a great question. And uh, to get right to it, we threw this uh, out to uh, fisheries biology, biologist rather, and editor of the Pond Boss, which is uh, Bob Lusk. And basically what Bob states is the male builds a nest when he finds a female whose eggs are ready to come out. Mm-hmm. So he won't build a nest until a female is ready to go. After the females lay their eggs, they are run off from the nest. On a rare occasion, a female will guard the eggs, but usually it's the male. Here's how it works. When the bass spawn, the male builds the nest. He's watched that process many, many times, and as the female eggs mature each spring, she becomes ripe to lay her eggs. As those eggs ripen, her behavior changes, and she gives off pheromone, a scent that triggers the male to begin his spawning behavior. When he senses a female is ready to lay the eggs, he goes to work. He finds the right spot to build a nest, usually in four to six feet of water, with a hard substrate of gravel or rock or hard clay. Then he pushes his head down and starts to move in circles, quivering and fanning with his pectoral fins, tails up, tail up rather, sweeping a nest into the bottom of the lake. Then, as the crater-shaped nest is nearing completion, he starts moving round and round it, fanning with his pectoral and pelvic fins as well as his tail. The female stays near but avoids the work. When the male finishes the nest, he goes after the girl, brings her to the nest, and starts to bump and nuzzle and guide her to the middle of the nest. As her eggs begin to be expelled, he coats them and fertilizes them with a snow-white milt, and the eggs tumble to the bottom of the nest. He continues to bump and nudge and push and guide her on the nest until she runs out of eggs. This is the interesting thing. This process may take hours, It may take a day. Then he forces her from the nest, piles the eggs into the lowest part of the nest, and guards them with all the energy he has until they hatch. When anything, meaning other fish, turtles, snakes, lures, etc., comes to the nest, he attacks by running at it, bumping it, pushing it, whatever he needs to do. The female goes away to feed. Here's an interesting uh, quote. Larger females don't lay all their eggs at once. With giant ovaries inside, all the eggs don't mature at the same time. So that female is likely to spawn again in a month during the next phase of the full moon with a different male. The male stays with the eggs until they hatch. Then, when the little sac fry have absorbed the yolk, the male nudges them as a tight school and pushes them upward in the water. He swims below them, forcing them off the nest. Then, as Bob so uh, pointedly points out, all hell breaks loose. Fry move around, are attacked and eaten while they attack and eat. A few survive, usually those which are most aggressive and 
find the food first. Within six weeks, there may be 10 fish left from the original school. If those 10 are lucky, four or five of them will make it to eight inches long. All the best, and thanks for serving our country. Bob Lust. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, I thought it was good. And if you want to see this in action, folks, just rent Finding Nemo. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, speaking of seeing this in action, though, uh, not quite to that detail, but I thought Bob did a great job of, of breaking down some of the misconceptions that you know, that all the bass spawn at once. And not only that, but I thought he did a great job of pointing out that even the larger females, all their eggs don't come in at once. Right. You know, and, uh, of course, we were fortunate enough to be able to get into a sight fishing situation to where you're going to see some actual documented footage uh, in the 2009 season of Bass Edge, so we'll keep you posted on that. Well, there you go. Well, congratulations, Rob. Hey, uh, also, folks, don't forget that you can check out BassEdge.com. We also answer questions there, and don't forget the newsletter, right, Aaron? That's right. Um, you know, that, that is exclusive material that is going to keep you up to date on what's going on in the Bass Edge community. Yeah, and if you want to send in a question, we would ask you to do that at prostaff at bassedge.com. And, again, they'll be answered on the web or on this podcast whenever we can get Aaron to get off his pancakes and get on it. <laughs> so uh, we'll definitely do that. Uh, where are you coming up next week? We are uh, next week. Um, we are going to be at Chafalaya Basin. So. All right. Yep. Well, that works for me. That's going to wrap it up for this week. You got anything else, Mr. Martin? No, just uh, a lot of great stuff on the website, BassEdge.com, all the merchandise. Uh, like you said, ask the pro section and uh, get signed up for those giveaways. We love giving away stuff except to Dan. Uh, absolutely. And, I, and just for the record, folks, I still haven't got my shirt. <laughs> so just just letting you know how things really work here at Bass Edge. Hey, we'll see you next time. This is Outdoors Dan. He's Aaron Martin. We'll see you right here on the Edge. Bass Edge would like to thank the following sponsors who make the Edge audio program possible. Ditch Witch, Mother's Waxes and Polishes, V&W Trailer Hitches, MegaWare Keel Guard, Cook's Tackle Management Systems, Ardent, Rule the Water, Legend Boats, O'Reilly Auto Parts, Superstar Batteries, and the Clarks Hill Partnership of Georgia. For more information on Bass Edge, including our television show, training materials, e-newsletter, and podcast, please visit www.bassedge.com. Be sure to join us next week on The Edge.